Chapter forty of A Woman's War by Warwick Deeping. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter forty. The month was August, and August at its worst, a month of glare and dust, and an atmosphere more trying to the temper than all the insolent bluster of a bragging march. Mr. Carrington, in his shirt sleeves and white linen sun hat crammed down over his eyes, stood under the acacia tree at his garden gate, chatting to the Reverend Peter Burt, curate of Cossington, who had tramped three miles to visit some of the sick people on the farm. Mr. Burt was rather a shy little man, very much in earnest, and very much convinced of the responsibility of his position. "'All this must have been a great worry to you,' said the clergyman, with a comprehensive sweep of an oak stick worry don't talk of it sir what with the heat and the medical officer of health and the sanitary inspector i've been pretty near crazy i don't know what i should have done mr burt but for murchison and his good lady mrs murchison seems to have been a local florence nightingale mr carrington stared i don't happen to know the woman's name he said but she must have been a good un mr burt to be showed in the same class as the doctor's lady why and the farmer withdrew his hands from his pockets and tapped his left palm with his right forefinger why do you know what she did when she'd been over here and seen how we were fixed mr carrington paused expressively and looked the young clergyman in the face as though defying him to conceive the nature of this unique woman's genius no i have not heard well mr burt there's religion and there's religion some of us wear black coats on a sunday and put silver in the plate some of us aren't so regular and respectable but we play the game and that's more than many of your sitting pew hens do excuse me sir i'm rather rough in the tongue well mrs murchison she doesn't strike you as a district visiting sort of lady to look at she's got a fine face and a head of hair like the countess of camber who gave the prizes away at our agricultural show last season well mr burt she came over here and saw what sort of a fix we were in two grumbling nurses and not much more than straw and sacking well what does she do but take one of my wagons and my men and go off to roxton all on her own mr carrington paused for breath took off his sun-hat and wiped his forehead with it, his eyes remaining fixed emphatically on the curate's face. And what do you think, sir? Back came that wagon of mine, loaded up with linen and basins and crockery, a bed or two, and God knows what. She'd ransacked her own house, sir, and gone round to all the neighbours begging like a papist. Get the stuff? She did that. Not easy to say no to a woman with a face and a voice like hers. Carmagee joined in, and Canon Stensley, and a good score more. And dang my soul, Mr. Burt, she's been working with her husband here, day in, day out. And that's the sort of thing, sir, that I call religion. The curate began to look vaguely uncomfortable under the farmer's concentrated methods of address. It took much to move Mr. Carrington to words but when once moved the result resembled the eruption of a long quiescent volcano the vigour of the eruption corresponding roughly to the length of the period of quiescence 
"'I quite agree with you, Mr. Carrington,' he said, with a certain boyish stiffness, as though he considered it superfluous for the farmer to condemn his soul to perdition. "'You must excuse my language, Mr. Burt. When I get worked up over a subject, I must let fly. And it's these dirty lies that have been flying abroad about this good lady's husband that have made me hot, sir, to see justice done.' Mr. Burt appeared interested by the windows of the house that glimmered from amid a mass of creepers, like water shining through the foliage of trees. "'One hears very curious rumours,' he acknowledged with a discreet frown. "'I suppose you've heard them over at Cossington?' "'Well, I have heard reports. "'About our doctor here and the drink,' Mr. Burt nodded. "'But I don't think anyone believes them,' he confessed. The farmer's right forefinger began to tap his left palm again. "'Look here, sir. I ought to know something about Dr. Murchison's character, I imagine. The man's been here nearly a month living in my house and working like a Trojan. We've had nearly sixty cases, what with the pickers and our own people. You haven't seen what the doctor's been through in this little epidemic of ours, Mr. Burt, and I have. You get to the bottom of a man's nature when he's working eighteen hours out of the twenty-four, doing a nurse's jobs as well as his own, and feeding some of the kids with his own hands. I've seen him come into my parlour, sir, at night, and go slap off to sleep on the sofa, he was that done. And never, not on one single blessed occasion, have I seen that man show the white feather or touch a drop of drink. Mr. Burt appeared to become more and more embarrassed by being stared at vehemently in the face, as the farmer's right fist smacked the points of his argument into his left palm. He had to return Mr. Carrington's stare, eye to eye, as a pledge of sincerity. He began to fidget, to scan the horizon, and to fumble with his watch-chain. "'Your evidence sounds conclusive,' he said. "'I think it is time I—' Mr. Carrington ignored the little man's restiveness, and came and stood outside the gate. "'Now I make it a rule in life, Mr. Burt, to take people just as I find em, and not to listen to what all the old women say. The rule of a practical man, you understand. Now—' The curate cast a flurried glance up the road, and pulled out his watch. "'You really must excuse me, Mr. Carrington. In a hurry, are you?' "'Well, I was only going to say that some of us people have come by a shrewd notion "'how all this chaff got chucked about in these parts. "'Murchison was a first-class man, and some people got jealous of him "'and played a low-down game to get him out of the town. "'You take my meaning, Mr. Burt?' "'Yes, certainly. Good heavens, it is nearly twelve. "'I really must say good-bye, Mr. Carrington. "'I hope—one moment, sir—' I won't mention any name, but perhaps you are just as wise as I am. And what's more, Mr. Burt, from what I've heard, that gentleman that we know of has just been treated as he tried to treat a better man than himself. It was his wife, they say. Excuse me, Mr. Carrington, but someone is calling you, I think. They can wait. Now, to be frank with you, Mr. Carrington, I can't. "'Oh, well, sir, if you are in such a hurry, I'll postpone my remarks. I was only going to say—' But Mr. Burt gave him a wave of the hand and fled. A girl of seventeen came down the path from the house between the standard roses, her black hair already gathered up tentatively at the back of a brown neck, 
and the smartness of her blouse and collar betraying the fact that she considered herself a mature and very eligible woman. "'Dad, are you deaf?' Mr. Carrington turned with the leisurely composure of a father. "'What's all this noise about, Nan?' "'I've been calling you for five minutes. They're all there in the fourteen-acre.' "'Who?' Why, Mrs. Murchison, and the Canon, and old Lady Gillingham, and half a dozen more. Dr. Murchison sent one of the boys over for you. Mr. Carrington began to hustle. Dang it, I expected them tomorrow. What a man you are, Dad. And she stood like an armed angel of scorn in the middle of the path. You can't go and see them in your shirt sleeves. Bless my soul, Nan, where's my coat? on the fence you were talking to mr burt long enough to forget it why didn't you bring him in mr carrington was struggling into his alpaca coat his daughter watching his contortions with the superior serenity of seventeen bring who in mr burt the little man's as shy as a calf perhaps you talked him silly look here my dear it's too hot to argue is my tie proper his daughter regarded him with critical candour. "'It will do,' she answered resignedly, as though her father's ties were beyond all promise of salvation. The camp of the fruit-pickers in Mr. Carrington's fourteen-acre stood out like a field-hospital under the August sun. There were half a dozen white tents pitched near the two sheds, and on an ingenious framework of poles an awning had been spread, so that the convalescents could be brought out to lie in the shade, and gain the maximum amount of air. The whole place looked trim and clean, and a faint perfume of some coal-tar disinfectant permeated the air. Mr. Carrington, as he emerged from the orchard gate, saw quite a representative gathering moving through the camp several of the roxton celebrities who had subscribed to the relief fund had been invited by porteous carmagee the treasurer to drive over and see how the money had been spent the farmer recognised lady gillingham's carriage and pair waiting in the roadway beyond the white field gate and canon's landau had drawn up deferentially behind it while mrs murchison's pony that drew her governess car was being held by one of the pickers who had lost two children but a week ago lady sophia appeared to be holding quite a state inspection for she had murchison in his white linen jacket at one elbow and the canon in his black coat at the other she was making considerable use of her lorgnette a very affable commonplace and well-meaning great lady who felt it to be a most christian condescension on her part to drive out and examine this temporary hospital and its london poor Catherine Murchison and Mrs. Stensley were talking to one of the women lying under the awning. The treasurer had remained judiciously in the background, and was snapping away to three Roxton ladies who appeared to be fascinated by some subject foreign to enteric fever and pickers of fruit. Porteous Carmagee looked very much amused, a thin little lady in a hat far too big for her, giving her an indistinct resemblance to a mushroom was attempting to draw more definite information from the lawyer by the feminine pretence of unbelief. "'But are you sure, Mr. Carmagee? "'It may only be a rumour. "'One hears so many extraordinary things.' "'I am perfectly sure, madam. "'There are facts, however, that cannot well be discussed.' "'The 
suggestion of mystery lent a double glamour to Porteous Carmagee's information. "'Then he has left the town for good?' "'I think I may swear to that as a fact.' "'And alone?' "'Quite alone. "'But surely his wife?' Mr. Carmagee tightened up his mouth and stared reflectively into space. "'Don't ask me to unravel the complexities of other people's households, Mrs. Blount.' but how extraordinary of course everyone knows that she is ill everyone knows a great deal more of one's private affairs madam than one knows oneself the three ladies exchanged glances they formed three spokes of curiosity with mr carmagee for the hub and no one has seen betty steele for some weeks that is so and it is rumoured then you have heard that too what my dear that it is an affection of the skin the lawyer extricated himself from the group and moved to where catherine's golden head shone madonna-like over the face of a little child affection of tomcats quoth he under his breath it is curious the way these women play with a piece of scandal like a cat with a mouse it mustn't die or half the zest of the game would be gone catherine my friend you are different from the rest during these digressions, Mr. Carrington had brought himself within the ken of Lady Gillingham's lorgnette. It appeared to the farmer that the great lady's eyes were fixed critically upon his tie. His right hand blushed as he remembered that there was a three-inch rent there in the seam of his alpaca coat. Such is the judgment that overtakes those who are mistaken as to dates. "'Good morning, Mr. Mr. Carrington.' We are admiring how beautifully you have managed everything for these poor people so clean and so so airy i am sure you must have suffered a great deal of inconvenience and worry mr carrington blushed porteous carmagee who was watching the drama from a distance felt for mr carrington a species of ironical pity the farmer's boots described an angle of ninety degrees with one another and the vehement smirk upon his face made the redness thereof seem dangerously sultry. "'We have all been so interested, Mr. Carrington.' "'Very good of your ladyship, I am sure.' "'I sent you an iron bedstead, you may remember. I hope it has been of use.' "'Great use, your ladyship.' "'Ah, that is right. And is your family quite well, Mr. Carrington? I hope none of you have contracted the disease.' "'Only my youngest boy, your ladyship.' but dr murchison soon had him in hand ah, quite so good day mr carrington and she relieved him from the splendour of her notice and turned to murchison who was waiting at her elbow what a noble profession the physicians dr murchison the big brown-faced man smiled and his eyes wandered unconsciously in the direction of his wife it has its responsibilities he said and also its compensations lady sophia waved her lorgnette to and fro and beamed to the extent of the five guinea check she had contributed to the relief fund she was wondering whether it was possible that this quiet clear-eyed man could ever have been the victim of such a thing as drink if so then he was to be pitied and not abused it must be so gratifying dr murchison to save the life of a fellow-being yes it is something to be grateful for how well your wife looks i hear she has been working here like any trained nurse 
Catherine, dancing a doll before the thin little hands of a child of four, was serenely oblivious to the great lady's praise. Porteous Carmagee was watching her, smiling, and rattling his keys in his pocket. "'Your wife is very fond of children, Dr. Murchison.' He looked into the distance and then at the laughing girl of four. "'She lost a child, and that means much to a woman.' "'Ah, of course, undoubtedly. Poor little creature.' and her ladyship tended benignantly in the direction of the awning. Canon Stensley and Murchison were left alone together by one of the tents. A man was delirious within it, and they could hear the meaningless patter of fever flowing in one monotonous tone. A doctor's life is no sinecure, and he stroked his firm, round chin. No, perhaps no. We walk daily at the edge of a precipice, and yet it has great compensations. They were silent a moment, watching Lady Sophia trying to coquette with a rather overpowered child. You have heard about Steele? Yes, my wife told me. One of those strange fatalities we meet with in life, and yet I think there was something of the nature of a judgment in it. Possibly. I am sorry for the woman. Then you are magnanimous. No, I have learned the true values of life. When one has suffered... One loses the meaner impulses? That is so. And remains thankful for what one has? For what one has. And Murchison's eyes were smiling towards his wife. End of chapter 40